Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Wednesday, September 6th, and we have a busy show for you today. We continue to investigate the flood that devastated central Vermont downtowns and homes. Today, we look for answers from two experts at a leading environmental group who specialize in water, how it flows, why it floods, and how it can be managed or not. We will ask them about the notion of dredging, what to do with the 14 dams along the Winooski River, and how we make sure to do the right thing for downtowns and the river ecosystem. Later in the show, we look forward to the opening of what I think is my favorite art museum anywhere, the Kent in Callis at Kent's Corner. And later in the show, we'll take your calls. And I'm starting a new feature. Ready? It's called Office Hours. Been wanting to do this for a long time. I want to answer questions from listeners about all things. We can start with politics, both Vermont and national, but we can branch out to other topics that interest you and me. The future of work, how to deal with future flooding and climate change, the arts, parenting, gardening, whatever. Here's how I'd like to do it. Start by sending me your emails. That email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We will collect them and read them, and we'll get many of them on the air on some Fridays at 1030. Let's start out this Friday. So send me your emails with questions, and we will answer them as best we can. vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Meanwhile, consider this. Two black men under the watchful eye of a guy named Arthur Ashe, battled long into the night and into the morning at the U.S. Open Tennis Championships. It was lost on no one that Ben Shelton of Atlanta and Francis Tiafu of Hyattsville, Maryland, by way of Sierra Leone, were the inheritors of a legacy built by Arthur Ashe. Tiafu's parents fled civil war in Sierra Leone, made it to the U.S. where their dad got a job as a custodian and mom as a nurse. Francis and his brother lived at the local tennis center in dad's janitorial office for 11 years while they learned to play tennis. Arthur Ashe was my first sports hero. He won this same tournament in 1968 when it was played on grass at Forest Hills, New York. At the time, Ashe was a captain in the U.S. Army a child of segregation in Richmond, Virginia. He was the inheritor of Althea Gibson's legacy, who won the same tournament in 1958. Gibson was the Jackie Robinson of tennis, braving segregation and and racism at every level. And Ash, possessor of a lightning serve and the best backhand in the game, went on to win Wimbledon in 1973 and defy the racist government of South Africa on an historic trip there. But the quality of Arthur Ashe that I most admired was his kindness. He never argued a line call, was always gracious to his opponents and everyone within the tennis community. And now, decades after his death from AIDS via a bad blood transfusion, Ashe's name sits atop the stadium where these big matches are being played, including last night's thriller with Tiafo and Shelton. 
Now, all of this history, all of this meeting, all of this courage in the face of a society that just didn't get it for so long takes place within the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. It was Billie Jean King who, in the 1970s, refused to play tennis on the national stage until her fellow women players were paid the same as men. That happened 50 years ago. Consider that when you know that the women's national soccer team just achieved equal pay to the men last year. Arthur Ashe is no longer with us, but Billie Jean at 79 most certainly is. is Winner of 39 Grand Slam titles, King is there at the tournament, her face emblazoned on all the marketing posters. She is the toast of the town, an advisor to young players, male and female, and a celebrity with the brand power to bend corporate sponsors to her will and drive the kind of equality she never saw as a pioneer in women's tennis. Althea Gibson, Arthur Ashe, and Billie Jean King. When you watch these wonderful tennis players over this week like Tiafu, Coco Goff, and Ben Shelton and Madison Keys, say a quick thanks to those names. They suffered long and hard so these young people could have better lives, win millions of dollars, and live in a better, more just society. Not to mention, play the best, most electrifying tennis you have ever seen. We'll be right back. We're back. Uh, to discuss- <laughs> We're back. Sorry, we were talking off the air. Welcome back. In all the talk and discussion and media coverage of the central Vermont flooding, we haven't focused specifically on what exactly happened and how. We know it rained a lot. But what did that rain do to the Winooski River and its north branch? And what role did dams play in the flooding? What do we know about the Winooski River? What do we do about it? Or is it we humans who are the real problem that need to be managed? To discuss these issues, we have two environmental experts from the hallowed Vermont Natural Resources Council, which since 1963 has advocated for Vermont's water, forests, land protection, and other issues. I'd like to talk about that long history, but that is for another show. Our guests are John Groveman and Karina Daly. Groveman has been the Policy and Water Program Director at VNRC since 2015. He's been General Counsel at the Agency of Natural Resources and Chair of the Natural Resources Board, which oversees Act 250. So if you have a complaint about Act 250, don't call Groveman uh, because he's no longer there. Karina Daly is a restoration ecologist at VNRC, responsible for running VNRC's dam removal program, and she contributes her scientific knowledge and expertise to policy issues around the conservation and restoration of Vermont's waters. Welcome to you both. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Can I start with – oh, and uh, don't don't forget to remind me to remind everybody about – and we'll get to it – about these community meetings that you are uh, have scheduled around the region. But I want to start with Karina and ask you this. Uh on that Monday when it was raining, what happened? What exact hydrologically or uh, water-wise, what exactly happened? Uh, well, the rivers went above their traditional banks, so they went into their historic floodplains, and um, those floodplains um, are 
you know, have been impacted over time by human development now. So the river doesn't no longer has access to its floodplain entirely, but that river wanted to return to that meander belt, that historic floodplain, um, um, and and needed to move there because the water rose so fast. So, um, but was here's my question that I haven't, and maybe John, you can answer this. There's the north branch of the Winooski, and then there's the Winooski. Uh, did the did the Winooski flood overflow its banks and back up the north branch, you know, going back up through town. Uh, is, th- is that what happened in terms of the water? Uh, Karina, why don't you, I think it's better for you to take that one. Yes, the Winooski did um, back up um, and basically, you know, when there's so much water in in a bowl and it fills up, it has nowhere to go. So it, it backs up, it moves, for, and the north branch... Um, Water levels rose, and Wrightsville Reservoir was, you know, close to overtopping. Um, so, yeah, the, the rivers were high. Yeah. And 400 years ago, John Groveman, uh, the water just would have floated uh, nicely into its – over the banks and into uh, the, the, the floodplain. And now we humans have built a, a world – of buildings and gas stations and Lord knows what along its banks and throughout Montpelier, Barry, Johnson, uh, Hardwick, and elsewhere, and now we're reaping the results of that. Yeah, I mean, you've done a great job, Kevin, on the shows that I've listened to on the on the flood. You know, talking about our historic settlement patterns, having you know lots of experts on, and it's been hundreds of years that we've developed along rivers for obvious reasons to make power to get water. That's how people originally got water. To dump our garbage. To, to discharge waste <laughs> yeah. without any treatment. Um, our waters were open sewers, you yeah. know, until the 70s, really, when we started to uh, – the Clean Water Act came into play and uh, the federal government said no more, and we began to stop that practice. But – and we can't, as you, I think, have explored really well, we can't go back to uh, 400 years ago and I think there's a lot of great work, and especially the mayor of Barry. I listen to a lot of what you talk with yeah. with him about. It. He also has a dual role of being in state government, you know, working on some of these planning issues. But I think there's a lot of focus right now, and there was anyway, because there's been a lot of talk about housing, as you know, over the last few years about Act 250, about other regulations. Where do we build? And I, obviously, the flood I think brought into focus like how do we build around these historic settlements in a way that doesn't, you know, increase the risk that, as we saw, because we're going to see this again, as you have yeah. discussed. Next week. Nauseam, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. But, you know, we could talk about that. And so VNRC is an historic, and it's our 60th anniversary, by the way, this year. That's right. So it would be great if you, if you oh. have Brian Schupan, who's our executive director, and I think it would maybe Elizabeth Courtney, and it would be worth exploring. Well, actually, no, years. we're going to go back. We're going to have Bren Whitaker, if he's still around, or, yeah. or I mean, we need the old, the, the greatest we hits. Could find, we could find you some of those old yeah. VNRC folks. But, uh, but so there's a lot of talk about, you know, Active 50 and those issues, but we also want to put on the table in addition to kind of how we rebuild in the historic settlement in a way that's smart, also like kind of branch out from that. And I think already, even before the flood, you know, we were talking about where do we need housing? It wasn't just to to densely put it all in the downtowns, densely near the rivers. It was 
and I think you've heard this on your shows, right? It's, it's like that circle around the downtowns that is out of the river corridor area, out of the flood plain, but maybe build up and more densely. But we also want to talk about like what are the policies that will provide more protection for the stream areas along the streams and rivers and our wetlands that could help to mitigate like when we get that next flood event. So it won't, and, and Karina can speak to this in depth, but it won't eliminate it, but it will lessen the impacts and that rising of the river, the backing up into the tributaries, the, um, the raging of those tributaries. I'm from Marshfield. We saw, um, you know, a lot of that water obviously got down to Montpelier, but we also saw, saw the force of those uh, tributaries just destroyed bridges, four bridges in Marshfield, yeah. were just knocked out. We're still rebuilding right now. I can't. It takes me 20 minutes to get down Route 2. Do you have drinking water? That's the question. We do now have drinking you water. You do. Which is another show you could do. Another show. <laughs> right. Apparently, the the calls were unheeded for a few days. They were. And we happened to have uh, uh, Ann Wallace Klein, who lives up the street from me. So that, yeah. was, that was helpful yeah. to shine a light on that. But anyway, so we. I think you know it's a whole picture. And I think the good news is we were already talking about these things. Like uh, VNRC... Uh, and working with a lot of our partner groups, we've been working on these policies to, like, how do we protect our, our stream, areas along streams and rivers, do better protecting wetlands and floodplains. And so, you know, that's one of the things we want to talk about today. And we, as you noted, we're going to have these community forums, one on September 12th in Plainfield, um, one in Johnson on September 26th. And we're going to do one in Ludlow. We haven't, I don't think we have a date yet. In October, sometime in October. And we want to go to the flood affected areas. And we have ideas about these kind of broader policies, but we want to get feedback from people and also hear about what happened in their communities more immediately. How do you build back and the role of dams? Because that's been a big focus Uh of conversation and a big focus of Karina's. So Karina told me that she's from the Penobscot Bay area. in Maine, and as I recall, there's a famous dam there that was removed, I'm thinking, 20 years ago now, a long time ago. Yeah, there was a couple. Um, the dam removals on the Penobscot River was definitely a really excellent model as far as balancing um, renewable energy, hydropower, there was, um, and fish passage and river restoration. Um, so, so it's a great model moving forward, and the Penobscot's doing better than ever. So... Uh, you, you know who told me this was the journalist John Dillon, uh, that there are 14 dams along the Winooski River. Uh, did those dams, whether they're being in, whether they're in use or not in use, did they contribute to the flooding or did they help with the flooding? So, or so none of the is, above. No, I think this is a really important question and I think um, it's good to talk about. But there are only eight flood control dams in Vermont, period. And those dams are built for flood control. They're managed for flood control, which means they are dredged regularly to, you know, have that bowl to collect water during large flood events. So those eight flood control dams, and there's only three in uh, the Winooski watershed. One is in Barrie, one is Wrightsville Reservoir, and Waterbury Reservoir. So those are the three in this area. And then there's uh, 
six more in the Connecticut River Shed side of the state. But um, those are it. And all of the other dams in the state contribute to flooding because they raise the elevation of the water. So they are not maintained for flood control. They're, you know, some are used for hydropower, some are drinking water reservoirs, um, some are old mill derelict dams from old mill remnants that are left behind. And those dams actually raise the water level because the a river naturally wants to transport sediment from its headwaters to its mouth, whether that's Lake Champlain or the Atlantic Ocean. And when you block a river, that sediment builds up behind the dam or the infrastructure that's blocking it. And if you don't clean out that sediment, then it's ultimately raising the water level of the river above the dam. So do we start pulling some of these obsolete dams out of the Winooski? Yes, we we need to start recognizing our river systems as the entire watershed from its headwaters to its mouth and having an intact river system, freshwater system from the wetlands um, to to the floodplains, to the river corridors, to the riparian buffers, and to Lake Champlain, need to be connected um, to have like a fully functioning system. And by pulling those dams out, we can restore. It's like it's the fastest restoration possible for a river because it actually restores flow, transport, sediment transport, and re- returns the river to access its floodplain. So, okay, so if the chairs of the Natural Resources Committees in the legislature are listening to this show, which, and we'll, I'll send them the podcast that comes out <laughs> afterwards, what's the proposal to those committees this year? Well, there's, there are several, and thank you for that question. So, and these are bills actually, I, I, we've been working on for several years. Two are already introduced as bills, and one, um, the plan for this summer before the flood, was for the Agency of Natural Resources to um, pull together a stakeholder group to, to make a proposal. So, um, and Karina, jump in, you know, yeah. with, with details. But the, the 30,000-foot uh, way to say it, and I'm the 30,000-foot guy, is we need proposals to bring, to create these, re- reconnect these river systems by um, finally basically having a statewide river corridor program. So the state is known, the state, Vermont's a leader. We don't just look at floodplains. We look at, Karina's mentioned, at the meander belt of the river, right? So it's not just the FEMA floodplain maps. It's like we know where these rivers are going to move. I think we've mapped the river corridors on all of our rivers. So we know where they are now. We know where they're going to be in 20, 30, 50 years and beyond. And the state has recommendations for towns to adopt uh, bylaws or ordinances to basically say, you should really, you have to regulate development and address development, not just where the river is today, but where the river is going to go. And you get a flood event like we have, it just accelerates it, right? It just like, like just puts it on, on, you know, um, hyperdrive, right? So what we saw in the flood is a preview of kind of where some of these rivers want to go. In Marshfield, um, I've been living in my house for over 20 years. I've watched the river try to uh, create a channel where it wants to go, and it never did it, but it did it this time. And it created a new channel, and we have a new channel, and we're going to have a community conversation in Marshfield about let's leave it. Let's leave leave that channel and then protect um, the land adjacent to the new channel, not try to put it back. It was rip-wrapped. It was bouldered in. Mm. So that's part of it, a statewide river corridor program. 
Um, that's not just like town to town, depending upon if a town has the desire to do it, but the state needs to do that. We need to also have a, a adjacent program to deal with our main tributaries and the land along those tributaries to try to re- have more vegetation, to slow down the water, to give those streams somewhere to go so we don't get that force, right, where you just like this building right up to the stream and boom, it just kind of like the jail branch and Barry, the Stevens branch. Those are streams, you yeah. know, really. They're tributaries, and they're all up the Winooski watershed. Uh, Cabot, Marshfield, Callis, how many roads got just blown out? I was in, in, I was in Harry's Hardware Store doing the show uh, with Joanna – uh, Tebow, the owner of Harry's Hardware, and she showed me video of the stream coming down the hill and over the street and tore off the back of Harry's Hardware. Yeah. And they had to take her out in a bucket loader. Yeah, it was wild. I was at, a, was I went wild. to Ca- Cabot Select Board. Shout out to Cabot. They held a meeting last week on, uh, and they had the state come in. The commissioner of DC came in, uh, to his credit. Um, and said, hey, what can we do? Like, And they basically recounted these streams oh. like that wrecked them. And they were like, we don't want to just like, yes, we need some bigger culverts. Yeah. Yes, we need some bigger bridges. But there's no culvert big enough. There's no <laughs> culvert right. big enough. Right. When those trees right. start coming down that yeah. mountain, there's and no culvert big so, enough. So it's the river corridor state program. We know what to do. Uh, the state recommends it to towns. We need to do it statewide. We could talk about the details of how to implement it a program to also protect those tributaries to the stream and how we're developing along the land there and managing um, that land. And then our wetlands program. We do have a wetlands program, um, but it needs to be improved. We're losing, you know, we've we've lost 30% of our wetlands since we've really been tracking those numbers. Um, We've been doing a little bit better in recent years because a lot of the federal money for conservation, but we need to improve the program to make sure that we're actually kind of gaining wetlands. So we're making sort of inroads and like restoring wetland to try to get back some of that 30% of the wetland that we've lost. And then we have, there's a bunch of proposals around dams that we need to do a better job of regulating dams for dam safety. It's a very patchwork program that's been underfunded for years. There's a split jurisdiction responsibility between A&R and the Public Utility Commission that never has made sense. Um, And so we have proposals around all all of those things. Karina, dams. There's a lot of them on the Winooski River. Do we pull them out? Let's not talk about – we're not going to ask the question, how do we pay for that? Because that always stops any valuable thinking. Do we pull these dams out uh, in an effort to reduce flooding? Uh, If we do, which ones do we pull out? Uh, Is this an act of the legislature? Is this a process with the Agency of Natural Resources? How do do we think about this? So, yes, we need to to pull out the dams that we can pull out and – you know, at this point, VNRC is targeting the low-hanging fruit of dams. So those derelict, those abandoned dams that are no longer serve a useful purpose that were built as old mill dams and have been left in the river. Um, and But they're still blocking fish passage. They're blocking sediment transport. They're blocking the river access to its floodplain. So those are the first dams we need to pull out. I'm, if, so people can have a visual. I'm thinking at the confluence of the North Branch and the Winooski, right there in Montpelier, yes. there's an old dam. Water flows over it. 
Um, Pioneer Street Dam. Pioneer Street Dam, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's that's one that's on the list. There's a feasibility study um, planned to, you know, what is the cost? What is the design going to be to keep the community safe? Like, how is this going to work? So there's a feasibility study on the table for that dam as well as the dam behind Shaw's on the main stem of the Winooski right in downtown Montpelier. That's actually the one I'm thinking about. Okay, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And Vermont River Conservancy actually is doing most of the legwork on those dams as well as a dam further up. um, I think it's called... uh, it's right above Bar Hill yep. there on yep. the main stem. I'm not sure what that one's called. That's right. At the moment. So, Along the bike path. You so can look at it if exactly. you want that bike path. And yeah. then, so that's not just Vermont River Conser- uh, Conservancy or VNRC. There's also Friends of the Winooski River, Michelle Braun. She's doing a lot of work. On she's coming the, on the show. She's got three dams on the Stevens Ranch of the Winooski that are she's working on removal of, as well as others. But during this most recent flood event, the, the Great Flood, um, we have a list of at least 13 dams that were damaged or um, fully destroyed from the flood event. Um, so I think it's an excellent educational opportunity to, you know, share what dams actually failed, how they failed, and how we can restore the river and restore natural process um, to mitigate these floods. Uh, but, okay, so you put a... Uh giant piece of machinery in the river and you pull out a dam, underneath that dam is a hundred years of Lord knows what, not to mention coal tar. There was a coal tar facility in uh, in Barrie, I know. Uh, don't you unleash a huge amount of pollution and junk that's been buried nicely. It's kind of like getting rid of asbestos. You almost want to leave it alone. Or or is it a better thing to just unleash it, let it flow, and let nature take care of it? Well, it depends on the dam and where it is. So we do all of the sediment sampling behind the dams to figure out the extent of contamination and then make a plan for what to do with it. Um, so yes, certainly dams in urban areas that have, you know, upstream impacts, we would have to isolate that sediment and there's, you know, a way to remove all of that sediment. And sometimes it's more than a hundred years. It could be 200 or 300 years in Vermont of, you know, that river's been blocked of its natural, um, transport process. So, um, but certainly there's ways to take care of that sediment and remove it, store it off site clean it, and then use it down the road. When I think about just the amount of contaminants that went down the river in this past flood, um, <laughs> sim- similar scenario as Ju- far as uncontrolled sediment. But certainly yeah. with dam removal, we are not going to wake up contaminated sediment and flush it down the river. Um, there's there's going to be a plan. If it's not contaminated, we want to allow that sediment to move because the downstream river hasn't had access to sediment, which it needs to build its banks and to to provide habitat for the future. So we want to flush some of that sediment if it is clean and let it go downstream because that's that's what rivers do is they move sediment. They're dynamic. So sediment um, transport can be a good thing if it's controlled and it's a planned release. It's not, you know, we, we aren't dynamiting our dams in Vermont at this point in time. So, so it is a planned release of that sediment. John Groveman, uh, I had Julie Moore, the Secretary of Natural Resources, on, on here on the show. She is a water expert by training. 
she, we didn't get deeply into the dam issue, but we did get into her desire to have more control over the Wrightsville Dam the way she has control over controlling the Waterbury Dam. She says Wrightsville, she doesn't have the ability to, to raise and lower the, the, the levels there, and she's going to ask the legislature for more, for money to give her the knobs and Buttons to you're saying that, that she didn't. The technology is not there. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, she doesn't have the technology. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so they, the um, that's a long way of asking. What is VNRC's role in this dam issue, along with versus the agency of natural resources uh, and the legislature? There, the three of you have got to figure this out. What I, and I mentioned that. So the dam proposal, like I said, there's split some split jurisdiction right now, split yeah. authority. Um, I don't, the right, Wrightsville is regulated by, by DEC. That's by DEC, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they have the they have the legal authority to regulate it. I think it just went through um, some sort of a process because they did some repairs at the at the dam before the flood. But um, she says she doesn't have the technology to to deal with the water behind the dam. Who, who owns? And who she owns does at Waterbury. Who and owns Wrightsville? Dam safety owns rice. So that, so the, yeah. and the A and R. So GMP at Waterbury. So the state owns it. You know, all these dams are like they have these like really weird history of sort of like ownership and use. So Waterbury Green Mountain Power uh, makes power on it, but the state yeah. actually owns the dam. Right. So and that's true for rice Green Mountain Power, and and because they make power, they go through the federal power licensing, which is a very uh, strict and comprehensive uh, regulatory program, which includes safety, and then A and R basically is making the recommendations about um, water quality and flow and managing um, those issues with the dam. And Green Mountain Power has the resources to put in the state of the art technology, uh-huh. and they have, and they do. That is a really well. It's been through the process. You may remember. I don't know, ten years ago, yeah. they drained it. Yeah. Remember, they drained it because yeah. there was some safety issues, and then you know they did some repairs and it went through a you know the licensing process. And there's a new water quality permit for it, and there was a lot of upgrades and a lot of technological upgrades. So it is pretty well it's state of the art now in terms of the knobs and the controls. Wrightsville, I don't really. I mean, the technology exists; it's money. If the state owns it, yes. Yeah, then I guess the state would need the money. To but but Lewis Porter it. over at yeah. uh, Washington Electric Co-op is going to want to keep those water levels high so he can generate power. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why you – I mean, that's what we have on all these hydro dams. We have this tension, yeah. and you've seen those debates in Vermont. We had it at Waterbury. We had it at Morrisville, the Green River Reservoir. We're still dealing with those issues. Um, had it years ago at the – um, Peterson Dam, if you recall, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and you know the Clyde River Dam, Clyde and River so Dam. we have have these issues that come up about fish habitat, power generation. We have water quality standards. The fisheries biologists and Lewis's interesting position as the former commissioner of fish and wildlife, <laughs> yeah. because it's his staff that are saying, in his case, you know, uh, Washington Electric, you can make power, but you have to provide fish habitat that meets, you know, the state requirements for for fish habitat and and water quality. Yeah. And so he can make power, but not not just unfettered. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so Lewis knows that and those are the that is a check on 
how much power could be made, and then also safety, you know, um, keeping the reservoir levels stable, uh, both for ecological reasons, but also for safety, for safety reasons and managing it. So, but all those issues, I mean, I think what Julie's saying, it's true. Like if, if the state owns that dam, they don't have the resources that Green Mountain Power has. So, right. so I do think if the, if we need an appropriation, then we need to do that. And we're probably going to need federal help because Vermont, you know, it's a lot of money. These dam projects, I mean, Karina, give an idea of how much it costs to like even remove one of these dams, let alone operate and like manage one of these dams. Yeah. So the, and these are the derelict dams that I'm, you know, I'm removing, but it can be easily a million dollars to remove a dam. So somewhere between 500,000 and a million. And, um, and that's three years of work of engineering, um, and then construction for the on the ground implementation. Before we take a break, and I invite you to call in two four four one seven seven seven. We've got the experts on the policy and the Karina. What do you call your what you do? Ecological restoration. Ecological restoration, right here in the studio. Two four four one seven seven seven. That's that's a lot of dams to remove, and I, here's my question: Why didn't we do this 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Why, why these derelict dams have been sitting there for a long time? We even know people like you have existed for a long time. They work in state government. Why have we not done this? I think people are attached to a lot of their dams. Yeah, um, I think that's there's right. a, there has a historic connection. They like the story of you know the dam and the history that's tied to that. They provide swimming opportunities for people and ponds. A lot of these dams are there's not a lot of natural lakes or ponds in Vermont, so many of them are dams um, and reservoirs, and and there's a shortage of swimming places and people are connected to that. And I get that. But we also need to think about how the river existed before the dams. And for 10,000 of years, there were rivers flowing freely. And that system, that's how the system functions, um, that freshwater river system. And we need to restore that system to allow it to function so that it can protect us all and provide us with clean water, healthy habitat, and flood resilience. Karina, you uttered the dreaded word dredge earlier in the show, and that's my excuse to ask you to put on my old-timers hat because I hear this on the street all the time. Let's just dredge these rivers so that they don't flood so badly. Yeah, and and I understand that's like an immediate quick-fix scenario. If we make the river deeper, then it can hold the water. But ultimately, that's channelizing the river. That's, you know, that's how you maintain your irrigation ditch in the West. We're not trying to turn our rivers into ditches, and that's push, ultimately just putting the pressure downstream to the next town below. So dredging is not going to solve our flooding problems. What we need to do is give the river room to move and allow it to jump its bank and to change. It needs room to change, like rivers change. We have old oxbows, old channels. We need to give the river the space to do that, um, and we need to give it the shade and the habitat to move all of that sediment and nutrients and food and wildlife up and down it. John, you're arguing against... Hundreds of years of human uh, manifest destiny and mastery of the natural world. You're trying to reverse that. 
That's a that's a tough road to hope. Yeah, I mean, I think I would I would put it differently. I mean, I think it's it, it we're, we're trying to do is learn from you know that people thought that there was mastery, but really we need to work with nature and not kind of push against it. And I think we see that if you push against it, you're just going to get the severe impacts like we had in this flood and yeah. previous floods. And I think all the shows you've done on this is let's be smarter, right? Yeah. Let's be smarter. And um, as I said, um, I don't know, if, I don't remember if it was before the, we got on the air or on the air. I mean, I think, you know, we already have been recognizing, and this is what we want to, when I say we want the state to take its like river corridor program and make it statewide, the state is already saying, uh, there's a strict analysis about whether you could build more, you know, in that river corridor. Like that's already the way it works. The recommendations are today. I know you've heard this before, but I think it's just such a good example. Like the transit center in Montpelier, yeah. that went through that kind of review. Yeah. It was like we're only if we had the statewide program, the only new things that would get built in these river corridors are things like the transit center in Montpelier, where you elevate the base level, where you don't put anything on the ground floor where all the infrastructure and the utilities and then all the living space is out of harm's way. That's what you're going to see. And then you basically, like I said, you look at sort of a circle around the downtown and you kind of go out from there. You don't want to go up um, into the headwaters. You don't want to go so high up that you're creating erosion and other encroachments on the streams that we need to protect that come down and you know like even i know people who live near hubbard park i was shocked nowhere near the winooski river those little streams right yeah they blew out and they 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 would they went into people's houses and basements and even first floors on some of those issues so we don't want to do that but good planning smart growth principles still apply um Smart growth principles still apply. We still can build in downtowns. Around we just downtown. have to, we just have to do it. And right. in downtowns, the right, the right way, like like a transit center thing. And then I think you know what what your show has been struggling with, and it is a struggle, and it's in large part because you know FEMA says here's money yeah. to build it back the way that it was. We do need to have a conversation about retrofitting what, what's there. Buyouts. People are talking about buyouts. Yeah. My town of Marshfield. I mean, there are probably, I think I've talked to the town clerk, there's like 25 to 50 people who really might want buyouts, right? Yeah. Because they don't want to um, master the river anymore, right? right? they like, we can't. We need to get the heck out of there. As Karina says, let the river, the river's going to go where it's going to go. Let's turn that into open space, you know, do some plannings, like to deal with erosion, but not build living space there. So I think that's the next level conversation. So like we're talking about going forward, where do we build, how do we manage these river systems? We do have to have a conversation about retrofitting development in our historic areas. I think it's a, I mean, the federal government needs, I think it's a climate issue. Like if I were running for federal office, I, th I think we need a federal program all over the country along all our river systems to look at development there and to provide money or low interest loans or no interest loans, whatever it is, buyouts to like to change the way that development exists and begin to do that. But Vermont can't do that alone. Yeah. We, uh, but we do need to talk about it. Karina, what do you, in 50 years, what should Montpelier, Vermont look like or Barry 
compared to what it looks like today? Would we notice? If you get your way, uh, if we restore the ecology the way you want, would it, would the physical world look different in our towns? I think so. I know so. I hope so. I, w- I hope that we look at the river, we think about the river that's in the backyard, that's been in Montpelier. I feel like we've, you know, we've built around it, we've industrialized it, we've used it as a resource, but I think we need to also appreciate for it for the natural, um, you know, for the natural process that it is. And if it's free-flowing, connected, moving sediment, moving nutrients, and uh, having access, even more access, I know Montpelier's not going to move, but maybe there's certain lots that aren't going to be rebuilt. Maybe there's certain places where we can give it some wildness, give it some vegetation, give it some habitat. And and those are the places that are going to make a difference, difference ultimately. And you know, people will be excited to go down to the river and spend time on it. Quick question. This is a pet peeve of mine. The surface, uh, hard surface parking in downtown Montpelier, Barry, everywhere. Should we, I'm thinking behind the federal courthouse, uh, all of that parking that is now going half unused, um, should we jackhammer that all, all that up and make parkland out of that? I would love to. Gravel. I think so. Dirt, I was, or, yeah, or, that was the first thing I thought. You know, that would be, that's low hanging fruit to me. It's like low said, hanging people, fruit. People aren't even, you know, using it like you said since COVID. It yep. really doesn't get used. And, you know, we could shuttle people in on electric bus. You could, you yep. know, we have the park and ride areas. It's changing human behavior. But yeah, that would help. Look, we're the first place. We were actually in our office the day of the flood. We were supposed to have a retreat that day, and we kept on moving it around, and we ended up in our office, and we met for half a day because people were worried about the flood. Bailey Avenue, where our office yeah. up from that, was the first area to flood, and that's where the high school is. Yeah. That's where those parking areas are yeah. that you're talking about. And now I got home, I think half hour after I got home, you know, I got the, the, the alert on my phone. That said, Bailey uh, Avenue Bridge is closed. Yeah. You know, uh, that part of um, Route 2 is, is closed. Yeah. So, yeah, if that was floodplain, that would help, right? Yeah. That was the first area to experience flooding and then yeah. kind of. And I think leaving this, you know, this, there's sediment that's been deposited there and piles, there's trees, there's. Oh, flooding. yeah. Leaving some of that, that, you know, that's shaping the new landscape of of the river and the and the floodplain there. So leaving that will allow new vegetation to grow and seed banks. We want that. John, tell us about the community yeah. meetings again. Thank you. Yeah. So September 12th, Plainfield Opera House. September 26th, Summer and Johnson. Go to vnrc.org. It's a community conversation. We're going to talk about everything we talked about here. We have ideas about stream protection, river protection, wetland protection, how to deal with dams. It's VNRC. It's Vermont River Conservancy. It's Friends of the Winooski. We'll have experts there, including Karina, to kind of provide some of the the type of information we talked about today. We want to hear from the community what you saw, what you think should go into these policies, and what people would support so we could go to the legislature and get support to make some of the changes we're talking about today. Thank you both for coming. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. John Groveman and Karina Daly of VNRC, the Vermont Natural Resources Council. You can find them at vnrc.org. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back with the one and only David Sheets, he of the State House uh, curatorial staff. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.